and welcome to a new episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from classics to obscurities, from films about ballet to films about punk rock, from the Red Shoes to Rock and Roll High School. My name is Michael Brooks. I'm here with my co-hosts, Sam Oliver and Bill King. Hello. Hi, I just, I just want to give um, listeners a bit of a behind the scenes. Um, Michael's currently sitting in absolute darkness, so all we can see is his vague outline which is a very intimidating way to be recording just so you're all wondering in case we look we sound especially scared this time it's incredibly <laughs> off-putting we were just saying like remember those early james bonds where you never saw who blofeld was and he was just like always wreathed in shadows it's kind of like that without the cat mm-hmm. so there's nothing good about it at all he's just just stroking a rat instead that's the nearest <laughs> thing you could find <laughs> yes um Sorry, yes, a boring technical detail. The lights hum. So for audio... (laughs) (laughs) That is a very boring technical detail, but it's an an accurate one. I like it. This is an audio medium, so this is is what's going to have to happen. You don't need to see me. Right, this week uh, we're talking about the film Everything Everywhere All at Once, a sci-fi comedy drama from the duo known as Daniels. Uh, it's been out for a little while, but we have all watched it relatively recently, so we're going to be giving you our thoughts on that. Before we get into that, let's have a little discussion of a couple of news items. Uh, I thought we'd start this uh, this episode with uh, a bit of an in-memoriam in section, I guess. Um, there's been a, quite a few sad departures over the last since we last recorded an episode, uh, so it might be worth just name-checking and giving a bit of a yeah a brief reflection, I suppose. So we've got uh, James Kahn, obviously. Uh, legendary uh, actor, Godfather, Misery, Elf, a whole host of others. David Warner from the other week, uh, very sad. Uh, Paul Silvino, uh, and just today at the time of recording for the Star Trek fans, one is uh, Nichelle Nichols. So yeah, um, there we go. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that last one. That's very sad. That is very sad. Yeah, um, yeah it's been well. I mean. Um, I, I went. It was an excuse to go back and rewatch um, Goodfellas again um, with Paul Savino because I mean his 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 performance in that is brilliant. And I didn't know it came out um, when he uh, slaps Ray Liotta um, during the scene where he's basically saying "Don't sell drugs." That was unscripted, completely improvised. Um, so that that just uh, shows what kind of uh, actor he was. That he just perfectly <laughs> judged that moment. But he's so great in that film because he seems like such a like fatherly figure whilst also being terrifying at the same time like you you want to give him a hug but also guy can really slap you so yeah he, he he's had an indelible effect and um yeah um david warner i'll just i'll just give him props because he was excellent in all of his three roles in star trek um often playing villains um and then of course michelle nichols as a uhura was a trailblazer uh, i think she was probably the first black actress playing a role with authority i think on uh, on on television so yeah really uh, really did uh, did a lot for uh, the screen there i'm also really glad that in talking about james Kahn, you mentioned elf because i've long been an advocate that um despite obviously appearing in some fantastic movies uh, you know misery and you mentioned Rollable. um godfather there as well i do genuinely without Without any hint of irony, I think his best performance is in the film Elf. And I know that I've said a lot of things here that I don't genuinely believe, but I genuinely stand behind that as a uh, as a full fact. So yeah, 
sad to see. It's always um, obviously very sad when these people pass, but it does mean that there's lots of really great compilation videos of all their greatest moments, which is a really nice time to kind of go back and have a little look and be like, God, they were pretty fucking great, weren't they? I mean, we commented, didn't we, the other day, uh, with David Warner, that like, you go through his back catalogue, you're like, bloody hell, he's in quite a lot of excellent stuff. I mean, and also has to be up there for uh, one of the best deaths in any film. Uh, oh. The Omen, of course. A top death. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that that image will be forever imprinted on people's minds, won't it? But yeah, he always, uh, always brought it, didn't he? Always very memorable in every role he did. He was one of those actors as well that I think when I first heard about him, I was like, I recognise him, but I'm not sure what I know him from. And then immediately started scrolling through IMDb and going, oh, turns out he's in loads of things I've seen. He's just one of those actors that, like, um, as, what's his name? Is it Spicer in Titanic? Where he just turns up and does a fantastic performance in a really big epic movie and then moves on to something else. He's just one of those kind of actors. And you never know, do you, in Titanic, whether he survives or not? Or do you? Does he make it? No, I like to think I like to think he makes it. I like to think he makes it. You know, Billy Zane survives, don't you? But no, maybe he doesn't then because it. Well, that withering look he gives to Billy Zane when like Billy Zane's doing anything to to survive, you kind of think that he's kind of like this honourable guy. So maybe he went down with the ship. I I think we're gonna have to. Billy Zane took the (laughs) took the place of a woman, didn't he? because uh, he nicked that baby oh yeah i think we're gonna have to wait for um james cameron to finish with avatar 2 so he can get onto titanic 2 and deal with what happened to spicer um when the ship was going down yeah we'll do a, we'll do a water special for avatar 2 we'll do the abyss titanic water world avatar 2 and water poseidon. World. <laughs> a poseidon adventure oh god that would be good i'm looking uh, forward to that one sweet Paul Savino probably as well has influenced uh, legions of uh, chefs with his garlic cutting technique. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, um, right. Uh, next bit of news. So, I mean, Bill, you mentioned this the other day. Uh, we now have news of Scorsese, cool. his new project, The Wager. So he's not, uh, you know, he's, he's he's got Killers of the Flower Moon coming up. Uh, End of this year, I think. I don't think it's released. Yet. No, it's been it's been pushed but, back. Uh, it's... Oh, no, that's a shame. yeah. So, but but it's good um, good pushing back because it's um. So they're, they're doing twenty twenty three. They want to um release it at either Venice or Cannes. So um it's it's gonna it's it's a festival release. So I'm not going to either of those. Are you not? So. Oh. <laughs> oh. well then it's bad news for you then. Sorry, <laughs> trying to get our impulse. <laughs> Try to get our press passes, but all oh, right. Yeah. Then. Are they not answering? Satanatic. They're not answering your emails. <laughs> um, so yeah, DiCaprio is attached to the wager. Uh, it sounds very interesting from what we know so far. But yeah, good that he's continuing to. I mean, he must be getting on for eighty now, mustn't he? So it's good that he's continuing to. Yeah, just keep plugging I away. I think he's post eighty. I think he's yeah. post eighty, and yeah, still going for it. It sounds yeah, it sounds great. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just more Scorsese content. Just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah, I'm very excited about that one. It's weird because I've been excited about Flowers, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon so long that it feels like, oh, that film's already out. Now I'm excited about the next one. But we've got two, so I'm just spoiled. I'm a spoiled brat. It's quite a good way of doing it, I think, just continually, and when you even haven't released your current film, start hyping your next one. So you're just constantly building hype for things that haven't even started happening yet. Like He's thinking, is 4D chess? Talking of building hype, so I saw the other day that the new, so Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer has been teased on a trailer, 
but it doesn't come out until July the 23rd, which is 11 months away. Now, that made me think, is this the longest wait from a trailer to release date? Because that seems unusually long, almost a full year. I, I don't know the exact, but I'm pretty sure Nolan's done this before. I'm pretty sure, like, he did that, like, yeah. that Dark Knight teaser of the Joker was, like, ages before. Because I, I, I just, I specifically have memories of Bill and I being incredibly excited about the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises for an inordinately lengthy amount of time before that film came out. I feel like it's Nolan's way of just being like, I've got something, I've got something, just, you know, you have to hang fire a little bit longer for it, you know. But I don't know the exact stats, so. I think he's so old school, like he does it like kind of the Hitchcock thing where, you know, he starts to just just pepper the uh, the idea that, oh, the next film's coming. Because you're right, that, that Dark Knight teaser was just a load of playing cards as well and just audio from the film. And then he did The Dark Knight Rises, which we got really excited about, which just showed Christian Bale looking a bit knackered and this hulking guy coming towards him. So it was like early, early on in shooting. So I think they were definitely probably at least... 11 12 months beforehand so i don't know it's, it's quite cool it'll it's the trailer was basically just a load of flames and audio and then i think one shot of killian murphy at the end so really giving not much away i think i prefer that to the martin scorsese school of trailer releasing which is wait until like the 11th hour and then quickly bash something out like <laughs> i'd rather have nolan giving me what i want a year ahead of schedule than constantly refreshing youtube to be like there's got to yeah. be flower moon out there there's got to be something <laughs> You're going to be so annoyed when you sat about to watch Killers of the Flower Moon and the trailer for Killers of the Flower Moon comes on just before the film starts. Yeah. You're like, oh, finally. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> I'll already be excited for it and I'll be like, what am I seeing again? Oh, I'm seeing this. Perfect. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, MS. Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio's in this. Okay, cool. Cool. Huh. He, he looks unrecognisable. It's a throwback to a conversation we had <laughs> probably about four years ago. <laughs> Right, let's get into uh, this episode's film then. So we're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. This is a sci-fi comedy drama written and directed by the duo known as Daniels, uh, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneiert, if I probably not pronounced that name correctly. Uh, I think it's Shinert. Anyway. There we go. Thank you. Um, so they've primarily done music videos and some TV work. Uh, their only previous feature film is 2016's Swiss Army Man. Either of you seen that? Oh, yeah. I love that movie. No, no fine. Um, <laughs> you, you nerds are missing out. Why, why aren't you watching obscure indie comedies from 2016? What are you playing at? Right, so this stars Michelle Yeoh, who you all know from Tomorrow Never Dies, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, she stars as Evelyn, who, so, I mean, before I go, <laughs> I'm going to attempt to describe this film, um, but... Yeah, good luck, man. Uh, <laughs> but you will be none the wiser uh, once I've finished this, if you have not seen this film. So Evelyn is, uh, she runs this laundromat with her goofy husband, Waymond, played by Ki Huey Kwan. Uh, and there are various stresses in her life, so she's being audited by the IRS, uh, print, um, principally by the tyrannical Jamie Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis. And her relationship with her daughter, Joy, is becoming increasingly strained due to the fact that she won't accept that Joy is gay. Uh, and these stresses culminate in some kind of rupturing of reality. So Evelyn learns that there are many parallel universes in every choice and path taken or not taken by an individual. So, it, you know, and that creates a new universe. Uh, and these versions of themselves uh, in the Alpha universe are capable of verse jumping, which means they can access the bodies and the memories of their counterparts in other universes. 
Uh, Evelyn has to do battle against the alpha version of her daughter Joy, who has the godlike power to create a black hole, everything bagel, which has the capacity to destroy the multiverse. Um, so there we are. Uh, simple, absolutely simple part, yeah. you know. So uh, the Daniels have been creating this concept and film since 2010. Uh, they had initially intended Jackie Chan for the lead role, uh, but changed their minds and built in the husband and wife dynamic instead. Um, this was released in the UK, at least, back in May. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's also streaming on Amazon Prime. So, yeah, Bill, you're going to go first. What did you think about this film? Well, I think, as you probably gleaned from uh, Mike's description of the plot, I mean, this is a wildly, wildly inventive film. Um, probably one of the craziest new uh, films I've seen in a very long time. Um, and, and all of that craziness is definitely present and correct, but it's crucially anchored to a really quite affecting um, character study of uh, failed ambition, identity, fear, longing, family dynamics and, and stress. And I think that's really important because you can have all this craziness, but if there's no you know, heart or um, anything, anything just like kind of making sense of it, it all becomes a bit pointless, which is kind of one of the central um, conceits of the film as well. So I thought that was, that was really well done. Um, the, the cast is is exceptional. Um, Yo, I, I think it's her best performance I've I've seen her in. To be honest, she's she's blows quite hot and cold for me in, in certain stuff. Like you know, she had great in Crouching Tiger, right in Tomorrow Never Die. She was recently in Star Trek, and I thought she was pretty terrible in that. But in this in this, she was she was great, um, and she really got the pathos. She really uh, played with the different versions of herself um, as she went through, and and it was a believable. Um, transition when she would see these different, you know, the movie star version, the kung fu version, the version with hot dogs for fingers. She sold all of them um, and and kept it kept it anchored. Um, Key as a, who was of course short round in Indiana Jones. Uh, great to see him back because he was he was quietly heartbreaking. Um, I really really felt for him and uh, and I thought he was wonderful and he has a grandstanding moment when the alpha version of himself comes where he's an absolute badass which is just a bit of a showstopper along with Jamie Lee Curtis who always brings it and the great James Hong as the uh, the grandfather figure who's uh, who's always great great character actor but yeah every character felt eight dimensional and multifaceted that was a terrible multiverse gag I might be some more sorry um and and I thought you know the the villain the villain character who was Joy yeah, you kind of could see where she was coming from with her, her, you know, her philosophy. There's a lot of theoretical physics in there. There was a lot of philosophy. You know, nihilism is her central thing. Of once you you gather everything together, it becomes meaningless, and that's the everything bagel, which I think is how a black hole works as well. When you have a big sun that collapses, it just creates a black hole. But I'm not the guy to be talking to about physics. Um, I, fight scenes were great, hilarious and brutal. And and they were like you know it was done as a as a sort of Looney Tunes cartoon at times, but it all had a reason. It wasn't just there for the sake of it. So when when the first fight scene happened, and um, I don't want to spoil too much because there's some great sight gags in there, but a character randomly starts eating some chapstick, and then stuff goes on from there. And I just thought, oh, is this going to be too? stupid is this just going to be just people doing stupid stuff for the sake of it because they're like oh this is a crazy universe 
but it it wasn't that. It wasn't just there for the sake of it. There was an eternal logic that justified it. Um, you know, I like any. Uh, we've said this before with sci-fi films, with high-concept sci-fi films. You've got to establish the rules of your universe, and this did that in a really, really funny way, and resulted in some really, really funny, gross-out, quite shocking moments, which uh, which I was I loved, and it, yeah, it made the gags land harder. Um, the design of the film, I, I thought, was brilliant, yeah, really beautiful. The colours were so vivid. It was all joyful at times. But it also had this kind of tangible, real, like sort of almost lo-fi quality to it. You know, it didn't feel like it was green screen or CGI. It felt like it was stunts, wire work, models, costumes. You know, it felt quite old school. You know, you could see the filmmakers' grubby fingers on it, as it, as it were. And and I kind of loved that. It felt it felt like it was made. It had this sort of low budget quality to it, but looked looked really good. It was like a, a paper mache model of Tracy Island. Um, yeah, and I have to I have to praise the film for what it achieved compared to similarly film themed films on the budget it it was on because I di- I didn't ever feel like the budget um, caused the uh, the film to lack ambition. It went as crazy as it needed to go, and even crazier. And and that is great for for this sort of film. If you've got a film called Everything Everywhere All at Once and it deals with this plot line, I think you need that. So all praise to them. It's it's a film I'm really I'm quite excited to watch again. Now I kind of understand how it all works and, and where it's going because it, it yeah I suppose one criticism is it's a bit of a sensory overload, <laughs> but I would say that's probably the point as well. So um, yeah, I I really really enjoyed it, um, and I think I'd enjoy it in most multiverses let's put that theory to the test and get in touch with as many multiversal versions of you as possible see what they thought <laughs> yeah no um okay i'll go next so uh, i'm i kind of loathe to quote other reviewers but i did see this described as kind of genre anarchy which feels like a very apt description so it does it veers wildly doesn't it from black comedy to kung fu action to kitchen sink drama almost to science fiction fantasy animation there's everything in here um there are a lot, lot many parts of this that reminded me of terry gilliam at his most absurd or alejandro jodorowsky other parts reminded me of a director that i'm very fond of and have spoken about on the podcast before andre zulowski who directed possession and uh, on the silver globe um it's just it has the same sort of borderline hysteria and mad flamboyance. Um, the first sort of half an hour, I kind of found myself thinking, nah, "This is this is sort of like the Matrix, you know, in its concept." Um, but then when it really takes off from the runway, it very quickly ascends to realms of the fantastical. And I think, you know, I agree with you, Bill. I think it's one of the strangest, most imaginative, and unique films I've ever seen. I think. Um, I thought the pace of it was, yeah, it's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, the filmmakers clearly thought, shall we temper any of this or inject some nuance? No, fuck it. Let's let's not do that. I just decided to throw absolutely everything on the screen. I mean, it's so bursting at the seams with ideas and sight gags and imagery. And it's, I mean, it's hard not to resist the urge. And I did, I didn't manage to, but at times I did have to sort of pause for a breather and just sort of step away. <laughs> so I just like, thank God I didn't watch this in the cinema. I, yeah, I agree with you. And I hadn't actually sort of, I, I thought that, yeah, the visual imagery was stunning. I hadn't really, I hadn't really, you know, 
identified it as looking kind of lo-fi in that way but it does yeah you're absolutely right i thought some of the set pieces are almost balletic in their kind of poise and, and the choreography it's, yeah and like you say it's not there wasn't a lot there that seemed to me overly cgi which is great all for that um there is so much going on that it will almost certainly be one of those films that you have to watch and rewatch over the years and i imagine it'll probably be one of these films that becomes a frequently on one of these like open air cinema summer programs i can see it being that kind of iconic kind of film that is always programmed and i think every time you'll watch it you'll spot something new or you'll pick up on some small detail or visual joke and there's just so many memorable parts that you know i just the rock scene was just wonderful um and the whole section about yeah, the only you mentioned it, Bill, but the alternate universe where humans have evolved to have hot dogs for fingers, which is, uh, yeah, and, and the 2001 illusion that I thought was brilliant. And, and yeah, gross out wise, I mean, the paper cut sequence must be one of the most wince inducing things I've seen in a long while. I, I mean, you kind of get the sense basically that it's a culmination of hundreds of stoned late night conversations. Uh, the, the directors and others have had with people and they've thought, let's put all of this into a film. Um, <laughs> there's only one way, really, that the Everything Bagel as a representation of the end of the world could come about. Uh, it's certainly not sober. Uh, so, you know, if if you're listening and you uh, and you haven't seen this and you sort of think it all sounds a bit daft and a bit juvenile, as Bill, as you said, it does have a deeper side. I mean, there's the kind of weighty philosophical, metaphysical subject and analogies that support all, all of the surface madness and that you know i like the way that they were exploring the nihilistic tendencies of youth and, and depression and how at its heart it is just a film about failing relationships isn't it between mother and daughter and between husband and wife and about misunderstanding one another and trying to work through these difficulties with empathy and love so there's a lot going on i think you know it's hard to imagine there being a more inventive or imaginative film this year or even this decade, I think it's, yeah, destined to be a modern classic. And, you know, if you haven't seen it yet, you must do so now. Whoa. <laughs> I really enjoy that as a, as a really direct ending there. That was, you've got to see it immediately or on pain of death. Yeah. Sam, you're presumably now going to take a wildly different tack. Um, for those of you that love confrontation, this is unfortunately not going to be the episode for you because I'm going to be singing directly from the same hymn sheet. My expectations were very, very high up for this one. Um, it's from A24, who we've talked about frequently on this podcast before. Um, I think A24 is a real good stamp of something that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, and then when I saw reviews coming out for it, especially the glowingly positive reviews that people were talking about, my expectations just increased and increased and increased. Um, I saw this ages ago, actually, because I saw it um, in the cinema when it first came out. And um, you mentioned it earlier, Michael, about seeing it in the cinema being quite overwhelming. And it was incredibly overwhelming, but in the best possible way. I think it's been quite some time that since I've seen a film that's so completely and utterly just like absorbed me into its narrative, there was no time to look anywhere else. And you didn't want to look anywhere else because you're seeing everything, you're seeing everything everywhere all at once. And it just sucked me in and wouldn't let me go. And I really thanked it for that. And um, as Bill alluded to earlier, 
it's a film that like feels massive and obviously the concept is huge and it's about everything and the concept of it feels massive the film is huge but at the same time as you mentioned bill it feels really like lo-fi and low budget and really nicely tactile you're not looking at a marvel movie where you're like that's green screen that's green screen you're seeing people doing actual choreography and actual stunt work and fight work and i think that is something that the film does really well in that it's a film of these great dualities so you've got like so the fight scenes, um, as a good example, um, they managed to like effortlessly blend proper good action and proper good choreography and fighting with incredibly good moments of comedy, neither of which take a backseat at any point. So you get these really good moments of tension and fighting and action and choreography, and then you immediately get these really great moments of um, comedy as well. They both work well, very. They both work so well separately and only complement each other. There's so many great moments in the films as well where you kind of have these characters that you only catch quick glimpses of. And so obviously you see a lot of different multiversal versions of all these characters. And a lot of them you only see very quickly, which normally would be would lend them to be quite two-dimensional characters. But the way that they've fleshed out and realised even these small, quote-unquote, insignificant characters makes them feel so well realised. And that was one thing that I absolutely loved about this movie, that... It's you've you've both mentioned it, but it's the idea of they throw everything at it, and it just so happens that everything's stuck and everything works so well, even though they've gone, let's just do it, let's see what happens. And I feel like it takes a lot to make a film that feels so massive and so messy and so chuck everything at the wall. But you kind of I think I you know deep down that this was such a labor of love and so much effort and rewrites and so much work has gone into making this film feel chaotic when it's actually really well thought through. And I, I, I loved that. I thought that was incredible. I mean, it's, it's a really, like one thing that really stood out for me um, is just the totally unique fight scenes. I don't think I've ever seen some of the fight scenes that's going on. And like I mentioned, they fuse action and comedy so perfectly. There's the fight scene with, with dildos. There's fight scenes with a bum bag. There's fight scenes with, I don't want to give too much away, but there's an incredible fight scene that you'll know about it when it comes up. Um, it's just amazing. And what made me like these scenes even more than just thinking about them and reliving them is I um, watched an interview with them where they were talking about um, a lot of their fight scenes were inspired by Jackie Chan films like um, Jackie Chan's First Strike, which I didn't know that they'd originally thought of him as the main role, which would have been pretty great. But I mean, Michelle Yao and... Um, the cast they did have is pretty great. If only, you know, I'd like to see the multiverse version of this film with Jackie Chan. That'd be really great. It may have just become another Jackie Chan sort of vehicle. It might have been, I don't know whether he, I don't know. I, I can't imagine it being quite as good just because he's such a big presence. Well, I think as well, like the idea of um, the family dynamic and the relationship between her and her daughter and the husband and wife and the family and the grandfather and so forth, would that have been, as affecting and would that have been as grand in scope if it had just focused on one main character as opposed to this like family unit um but yes so going back to the fight scenes like obviously jackie chan a lot of his fight scenes are him fighting with ladders or chairs or like whatever he can get his hands to and so many of the fight scenes in this have that same kind of chaotic energy to them where it's just like whatever you've got to hand i'll, I'll grab some gravel from the fish tank behind me and use that to weight down my bum bag to fight these security guards. It's so funny, but also so well done at the same time. It's just, it's such an incredible juggling act of a film. I loved it. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, you guys have mentioned a lot of the things that 
I loved about this film. And in case you can't tell, we're all incredibly gushing about it. The one thing that I took away with me as a thing to like, I love that these kind of films are being made. Similar to the discussion we had a couple of episodes ago about The Northman, despite our differing opinions on The Northman, I think we all kind of came to an agreement that like, it's so cool that these movies are being made by these super interesting filmmakers that are kind of being given a a bit more free reign to do whatever they want with a slightly bigger budget, but they're also getting critical and commercial success. Like that's such an exciting time when you're watching, again, whatever your opinions are on them, when you're watching your umpteenth Marvel movie or the Top Gun sequel or this reboot or that reboot, it's so cool for like these new cool original directors and to tell new cool original stories. Um, And as you've already mentioned, Michael, I totally agree. In the same vein as something like Parasite, this is going to be one of those films that will, just be on those kind of greatest films of all time list. It'll be the kind of film that people will want to revisit, to rediscover more, to discover more about it on second viewings because there's everything in it and you kind of need to see it. Not all at once, more than once. <laughs> I just came up with that now. I didn't even write that down. Isn't that good? And um, finally, I just want to, I just wanted to ask you both a question. Is there any path in your life that you didn't take that you'd like to now see how it pans out in the multiverse? Because I was thinking about this, that like in 2010, um, for a Christmas, I got a ukulele that I tried to learn, but then sacked in pretty quickly. And I just would love to see what ukulele Sam, what his universe is like. I think it'd be a, a, a fun skill to get if I cut, did a paper cut. But also I just want to see what, what that guy's up to. What's he living? Is there anything that you were like, oh, if only I'd taken that different A level? Yes. I mean, my life is, is seems to be littered with these paths untrodden <laughs> um not i'm not sure i'd want to share many of them on the podcast but i do remember once uh when i was uh, just graduated from university went to, on a long big trip to america and found myself kind of facing in a tricky situation let's say between accommodation and i desperation went to go and see a, pl- a place that was for rent which was like you've. It was just like all these kind of American horror films that you've seen countless times before, and there were very strange people living there who had been washed up in many different ways. And <laughs> I just wonder if I'd taken that room, what would have happened? <laughs> would you be Would you be doing this podcast right now? Would you be in an unmarked grave somewhere? You'd definitely be dead. <laughs> Weirdly, me and me and Sam would still be doing the podcast, and we'd be talking about this this true story, true crime film that's come out that was about this guy we used to oh, know yeah. um, that disappeared. <laughs> this new Netflix true crime documentary. <laughs> yeah, we're like, it's, it's not a great film, but he wasn't really a great guy, to be honest, from what we can remember. So, no, the one the one that keeps me up at night, the one that does does keep me up at night is like if I had taken a proper GCSE rather than drama and I wouldn't have like become friends with you two, then, you know, I might, I might have like a, like a girlfriend or something right now. And I might not be, not just be sat here recording podcasts, talking about films. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I didn't really think about when I wrote that question down, I didn't really think about how I'd have a fun thing to talk about a ukulele. And I was basically asking you to reevaluate your entire life's work. So sorry about that. I, that was, I'll admit that was a misjudged idea on my part. A misjudged idea. 
Well, anyway, there we go. So uniformity across the board. Um, as you said, Sam, it is great that this has been doing big business. So yeah, A24 is now A24's highest grossing film. It's beaten Hereditary, uh, which was a uh, previous holder of that title. So yeah, excellent work. And I, it will probably, it's obviously lost, left its cinema uh, cinema release pattern at the moment, but I'm sure it will be in cinemas at some point. Uh, but go and find it if you can. Let us move on. So what else have we been watching over the last few weeks since uh, we last recorded an episode? Bill, you go first. Well, I thought I'd really stay on theme. So here's a funny wrinkle. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once releases, and it's about the multiverse, at the same time that Marvel did their version of it, um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, which is directed by Sam Raimi, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Elizabeth Olsen, and Benedict Wong. So I thought I'd watch this because I thought this is, I'd like to see a similar idea, and I'm going to see the big budget version of it, where, you know, they really, they really could do whatever they wanted because they have infinity amount of money. Um, so the plot is Doctor Strange, who is an Avenger who's a wizard. Um, so he's got magical powers, is forced to venture into the multiverse to stop Wanda, who's another Avenger who's got magical powers, um, who's maddened by grief due to the loss of her children and will do anything to get them back. So um, in the multiverse, there's a version of everything, everywhere, all at once, which is as dull and shit as this film. Um, and um, I'm just very, <laughs> very happy I don't live in that one. <laughs> This is the perfect example of when producing by committee or, and I'm not just saying committee as in like kind of the studio, I'm saying committee as in like kind of the fans as well. Fan service, lack of coherent character development and plot results in a mess, but it's not a fun mess. It's not a particularly fun mess like everything everywhere all at once was. This is just a, this is just like a, a shit on the carpet. This is just not, it's, it's nothing's fun about it at all. There's a, there's definitely an interesting story to be told here because we've just told, talked about it. Um, and Raimi is absolutely one of the directors that I'd be thinking, great, yeah, let him loose in the multiverse. This is going to be wild. And you can see glimpses, but it's really sad because his fun camera work is there it's in some sequences. Um, you can see his brutal horror roots shining through as much as they can. You know, there's a few, like, slasher kills. There's a few, like, darkly humorous kills. You know, it brings you back to sort of Evil Dead. And, and you know, his camera's always moving. And, and, and you know, there's glimpses of that. Again, what we were just talking about, that lo-fi quality. But it's just brutally smashed down by the the behemoth that is Disney and the the MCU. It feels rather than being free because of all the the the, the money that's behind it, it feels hampered by it because it has to be a Marvel movie. And I and I love the MCU by and large. Like I think there's some some great films in there. I really enjoyed Infinity War and Endgame and they were they were massively large scale films, but this feels really burdened by it, burdened by what it has to do to fit within that universe and when you're telling a story about the multiverse if you have to put any any you know the sides up when you're bowling that's not going to be fun and it, it should be absolutely crazy you know we, we say the hot dog fingers it should be absolutely crazy mad stuff as they're going through this universe but we get one sequence that i think lasts about 10 seconds and it's just a montage as they fall through the universes and that was the only bit that I kind of really enjoyed. It didn't last long enough. The rest of the film, and I'm 
not making this up. It's, oh, this is a dimension where Doctor Strange has a ponytail. <laughs> and he's like, oh, God, I can't believe I'd be in a dimension where I have a ponytail. Oh, here's a dimension where the pizza, it's sold in a ball shape. Now, I'm pretty sure it is in this dimension because you can get those twisted dough balls from Domino's and they're just like a pizza calzone. wrapped up. It's like a calzone. That's not mental. That's not crazy. And then, oh, uh, oh, here, they nearly get run over because red means go and green means stop. That's the level of gags we're getting there. It's so safe. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not making that up. That is, that is how wild they were prepared to go with it. The cast are all fine actors and they struggle manfully with the material. Olsen resonates the most because she actually has a character arc. She's a grieving mother that's turned into a you know a monster that'll do anything she can to get her kids back. The rest, not so much. I really feel sorry for Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, not that much because he's getting paid loads of money, but it, it, he has no real like character arc. And the, the guys, it, it, I, I don't want to say this because this is like, I have this argument with people about their Marvel films all the time, but it, it seems like he's too good for this sort of film. Um, there was some fan service that kind of made me giggle at the time, but then afterwards I sort of felt empty. I was just like, oh yeah, that was good. I would rather it would just been a fun YouTube video I watched rather than, a film. I don't want to spoil any of the fan service moments, but they, they they certain cameos pop up and it's wild, and then you're just like, well, it was pretty pointless for the plot that, so it doesn't resonate, it doesn't stay with you at all. Um, I enjoyed uh, the nasty Raimi kills where he, you know, he got to do four or five fun fun kills, which I was like, ah, oh, that was cool. But it, again, it just made me wish I was watching Evil Dead Two. Um, you know, I was, I, it just made me think there's. I can watch better Raimi films. Um, and the Bruce Campbell's got a great post-credit scene, and I really like the Bruce Campbell's in the MCU. Um, but the rest, the rest of it, in compa- especially in comparison to everything, everywhere, all at once, it's just laughable. But yeah, I'm sure there's a version of me out there in the universe who didn't watch this film and actually did something productive with my precious and finite free time. So yeah, that's uh, that's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and of course, it's on Disney Plus. Do you know? Do you know what's funny? Um, there's a multiverse that you're living in right now, where somebody that you know um, went to go see that movie and thought that it was all right. This guy right here. I mean, I'm not dying about it, and I'm literally, I am. This that isn't glowing praise, but I'm not going to go to bat for it because I don't think it's really worth going to bat for. But I didn't have quite as much venom for it as you did although hearing your criticism i now i'm like huh perhaps i should have had more venom for it so you've it, this multiverse exists <laughs> did you did you watch it before everywhere everything all at once i think the problem is i watched everything everywhere all at once first and i think if i'd seen dr strange first i might have been like ah, oh, that was fine and then I think everything everywhere at once would have still blown my mind because it's a mind-blowing film, but I don't think I'd have compared it as much. I think, if I'm being fair, it's mm. probably just a middling Marvel entry. Um, but because I watched them so close to each other and because it just it just, it, it, it brought like a moral uh, <laughs> side to it, I was just like, oh my God, this is so annoying. Imagine what they'd have done with this budget. It's wrong. It's wrong. So yeah, I, I did. Yeah, maybe I'm being unfair. <laughs> It feels almost serendipitous, doesn't it? You have two films out at the same time that, or near enough the same time that are exploring the same thing, and yet obviously one is a bare. Really, really similar. Really similar. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Thing is, though, I feel like when it comes to Marvel movies, I almost judge them on a different metric to like other movies. So I think like my Marvel movie metric exists like on a couple of. So to put it into a metaphor you might understand, Bill, it's like regular movies are like Premier League, but then like Marvel movies are like yeah. Championship Division Two or something. So when I see like a Marvel movie where like yeah. they win two one, I'm like, yeah, fine, that was a nice time because I'm judging it against other things that are kind of garbage. Whereas like I, I almost even though they're both multiversal films, I was like, obviously this latest MCU film is not going to be able to hold a candle to this like absolutely batshit A24 movie made by auteur directors. <laughs> Don't really compare them. But now that you have compared them, maybe I'll reevaluate my opinion. I, no, I do I do agree with that because, you know, Marvel films, they've done like a spy thriller. They've done, you know, they've done um, space movie for, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi stuff. But I've not seen a Marvel film that's directly compared to another film in that, like, basically really, really similar plots. And, like, the multiverse, like, there's not loads of films about parallel dimensions, is there, and, and different versions of yourself. So it, it was just it was just strange seeing that. You know, maybe if I'd seen an A24 film called, like, Robo Man, and it's about a man who builds a metal suit to save his life, and that was way better than Iron Man, that'd be the same sort of thing. But it, it just, it just yeah. felt very strange in that, uh, just from seeing such inventiveness on what was a fraction of the budget and and power to to um to achieve it and then to see to see this which just felt i mean i've probably been unfair because it's probably just edited down i don't want to blame Raimi, but it just it just was not even a, a tiny iota of the craziness of what i'd just seen with everything everywhere all at once I do think on that point that um, the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie is um, the same story as The Lighthouse. So maybe that'll change your mind on it a little bit. So right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they all get yeah. trapped in a yeah, space big lighthouse. lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> so watch out for that. We'll, we'll do that as a double bill later on, don't worry. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay. Um, so I'm going to forget the multiverse now and uh, bring us down to the universe we are living in currently, which is quite horrible. Uh, so um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there have been dark times in uh, America for, well, for a while now. Um, I suppose limiting ourselves to just the last few weeks, I guess, you know, you've, you've got the shocking testimony that's coming out about the January 6th hearings. You've got the uh, Uvalde school shooting, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It kind of feels like it's not particularly a good place or in a good place at the moment. Um, so it felt like the perfect time to revisit uh, an American dystopian double bill that I inflicted on Bill a few years ago. Um, and if you're so inclined, you can uh, you can enjoy this double pairing uh, yourself at home. So firstly, uh, I want to talk about the 1971 pseudo-documentary Punishment Park from British director Peter Watkins. His previous work includes The War Game, which uh, we talked about on our Disturbing Films episode, episode number seven. So this came out amidst a tumultuous period of of its own. So the Vietnam War was being escalated by Nixon. There was the Kent State Massacre the year before, the trial of the Chicago 7, and just kind of growing tension and animosity between generations and classes. And Peter Watkins uses the cinema verite style. So this is shot on 16mm with a skeleton crew and amateur actors. And the setup is that amidst all of this tension and unrest, uh, Nixon has decreed a state of emergency, which means that authorities can detain 
anyone judged to be a risk to internal security. So accordingly, this then sweeps up a whole corpus from the counterculture. So you have anti-war protesters, Black Panthers and civil rights uh, activists, feminists, communists, all who, all who of whom are given a choice. So either they serve a full 20-year prison sentence or they take their chances in Punishment Park, uh, whereby they are taken to the Californian desert and instructed to make an arduous 53-mile trek in the baking sun without food or water to reach an American flag, all the while being pursued by National Guardsmen. Uh, and those who make it to the end of the course will be set free. So Watkins crafts this documentary feel very, very well. So it alternates between these kind of ad hoc tribunals where the detainees are put before this court uh, and footage from the desert. Uh, and he gave the cast free reign to improvise and follow their own instincts with minimal direction. Uh, and this works so effectively that at one highly charged moment of drama, real panic actually breaks out as the kind of police open fire and you can hear Watkins actual panic because he thinks that they might actually really have shot the uh, the others. Um, and it's not surprising because it looks and feels so immersive and the desert scenes are so uncomfortable and anxiety inducing. It's, it's a wonderful dystopian vision of this, this alternate reality of proto-fascist America, which means that it will remain kind of intermittently, sadly relevant. Um, it's a brilliant depiction of police brutality, authoritarianism, and the kind of bitter divisions between social classes, those charged with enforcing law and order and those who are designated internal enemies and agitators and who refuse to conform. So it, it, it's both very disturbing and powerful cinema, and you can see how, in its kind of brutal simplicity, it inspired things like Battle Royale and even The Hunger Games, you know. Um, so you know, I, I think this... De- this needs to be seen, I would say. So it's Punishment Park. And I would pair this up. Uh, the Killing of America, which is a 1982 Japanese-American documentary in the Mondo style, which was a kind of subgenre of documentaries, which were kind of like exploitation, grindhouse films. Uh, quite problematic, really. Um, this documentary directed by Sheldon Renan and Leonard Schrader. And it basically sets out to depict in graphic and harrowing detail the the decline of America through uh, an exploration of some of the most infamous and sensational killings. So you have things like uh, the Robert Kennedy assassination, the Texas Tower sniper, and serial killers like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, uh, as well as some of the more mundane, everyday brutality on the streets of America. Uh, it's narrated by Chuck Riley, who is a famous voiceover artist. He was a very deep, detached tone that lends this kind of really quite cliché gravitas. Um, which which does date it, but uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it offers next to no insight or analysis for why the violent murder has increased over the time period it covers, um, and it seems to take as its starting point the killing of JFK in 1963 as this sort of psychological moment when the dam burst on America's latent violence, which is quite odd, and I don't think would help stand up to much scrutiny, but it works well enough as a framing device. Um, and I would say, you know, if you're a fan of, I mean, there's so many of these like, you know, true crime documentaries and podcasts and all sorts of stuff. You know, it is a, there's a real market out there for true crime. So, you know, this is pretty much the ultimate documentary for you. I'd suggest it's uh, unflinching, it's horrific detail, um, and has a real transgressive power. So there you go. There's a, a dystopian double bill for you of uh, Punishment Park and The Killing of America. Yeah, getting invited around for a lovely evening, lovely uh, dinner 
Michael cooked for me and then uh, then subjects me to that double bill. And I think around about the second bottle of red wine when uh, watching Punishment Park, I did start actually genuinely believing this was a real documentary. He set me up and, yeah, I had quite a visceral reaction to it. But, um, yeah, both <laughs> both are. Um, I, I, Punishment Park's a, a fantastic film. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It really it really captures the... Uh, the sort of the the, the <laughs> counterculture and the authority uh, pretty perfectly, but yeah, it does. It's very uncomfortable viewing. Both very uncomfortable viewing, but um, yeah, worth worth a worth a watch if you can you can stomach them. Fun fact: um, after a Creaky Chair Film Festival quite a while ago, um, Michael recommended I watch The Killing of America, so I started watching it and um, it broke my TV. Um, I started watching it and the. <laughs> The, the image disappeared and I could just hear the dialogue of this guy going, in America, blah, 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 blah. And I thought it was like an artistic choice. So I sat there for about 10 minutes just hearing him talk. And I was like, I'm fairly certain there should be visuals here as well. And then, yeah, so Killing of America, watch out, it might break your TV. Killed your TV. Killed my TV, like it killed America. There you go. Um, Sam, round us out with something hopefully pleasant. <laughs> uh, well, see, I was tempted this week to do a bill and do the double do, double down on multiverse and talk about Doctor Strange too, but felt a bit on the nose, so I, I left it. But luckily, you picked up that baton, so that worked out well. Uh, yeah, you know me; I like obvious, to think too obvious. Yeah, don't worry. I'll you're, always you're take in a box. The obvious I'm outside choice. the box, looking in the box. Anyway, that doesn't really work. Anyway, I'm um, this. T- You're the alpha version. You're the alpha universe version of. Me. I'm yeah. I'm ukulele version of me, um, making all the right decisions. Um, so I'm going to talk about a 1979 musical drama biopic, um, all that jazz, directed by Bob Fosse. Um, I hadn't really heard all that much about this film um, before watching it. Um, it's in various. Films You Must See Before You Die book. Um, and it stars uh, a fave of the Creaky Chair fan club, uh, Roy Scheider, in the main role um, as Joe Gideon, who is basically a um, is Bob Fosse's double. So it, the story is um, about the director and choreographer, Joe Gideon, who is a womanizing, drug abusing um, dancer with you know, cliche, but a heart of gold, um, and his life and his kind of career. And it's an absolutely fantastic movie. It's incredible. Um, Bob Fosse, uh, director of such films as Cabaret and Broadway choreography legend, um, basically made this movie to kind of exercise his own demons a little bit. So it's no, he's not shied away from the fact that Joe Gideon, the character that Roy Scheider plays, is basically him it's Bob Fosse working out his like own demons on screen in the form of Roy Scheider. Um, and it makes for an absolutely fantastic movie. It's uh, the setup is basically you see Roy Scheider's um, character, Joe Gideon in this kind of ethereal otherworldly place um, that we're not quite sure of exactly what it is. Is it the afterlife? Is it just his fantasy world? Is it something else? Uh, but he's talking to Jessica Lang and kind of reliving the highs, lows and the mistakes and all the various things that he's done throughout his life. Um, so ostensibly the film is a musical um, and I, I like musicals. I have a lot of time for them, but one thing that inevitably takes you out of the drama of a musical is the fact that 
at certain points they start singing songs and doing dance routines and it feels it, it showcases the artifice of the whole thing that you're watching because in West Side Story if you saw when we were a bunch of toughs in the streets of Harrogate we didn't all of a sudden start dancing and clicking around the place we just went into town and um, but the great thing about all that jazz is because it's rarely, uh, rarely. rarely on occasion after we did our GCSE drama degree um but the great thing about all that jazz is it's a musical about musical theater it's about him creating and producing these shows so when you have scenes of them doing a big dance number it's them rehearsing for this show so it makes complete sense and drags you even deeper kind of into the story and then uh, later on when you get some of the more kind of like fantastical like dreamlike dance sequences they're set up in such a way that you don't question it at all it feels like it completely flows with the narrative which is always a thing that musicals because of the big high emotion high drama i can kind of get a bit kind of taken out of that moment because you're thinking about the artifice of it all but all that jazz doesn't have that at all for me it's really really good and it's a really funny film as well there's some really great like quick little snide throwaways there's lots of great like dark humor in it as well makes it even darker thinking about the idea that bob fossey is effectively kind of airing his dirty laundry through the pants of roy scheider which is a very odd analogy but i went with it so it's fine um yeah, it's a really fantastic movie, very 70s, um, and just one of the best like musicals I've seen in quite a while. There's this really great um, ongoing theme where he has um, the guy that writes his music for all of his, for Joe Gideon's new show, does this really boring, cheesy kind of song that obviously Joe Gideon absolutely hates. And then gradually it's him kind of taking this premise that this guy has and turning it into this like dirty, sexy kind of like really cool performance. And it's a really, really fantastic scene made all the better by this duality of you're seeing this incredibly cool dance number, these incredibly talented performers. And you're also getting shots of the guys that are financing the production looking livid and really sad. So it's a great kind of, it just great kind of masterpiece of like filmmaking. Um, yeah, I, I'd highly recommend it and probably improved more for me because I didn't really know that much about it going into it. So I was completely kind of um, just went in blind watching it, but can highly recommend it. It's a great film. And Roy Scheider, as ever, um, who me and Bill were talking about literally before this episode started recording, uh, is fantastic. So yeah, can recommend. Um, I got this from... I think Cinema Paradiso, but I'm sure it's available on various streaming Sky stores, Amazon Primes. Just go outside and ask your neighbour. Maybe they have a copy. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> really got to the end of my uh, point there, but kept going. It's not. It's not. Can I borrow a cup of sugar? <laughs> not. Not. Not borrow a cup of sugar or tea bags or anything. It's. Do you have a copy of all that jazz starring Rush? No. Yeah. <laughs> Quick question, quick question. Yeah, I've got two. How's the spare one? <laughs> As luck would have it, we were throwing this one out. Bloody hell. Well, there we go. Uh, a fantastic array of films as ever, from from jazz to serial killers to uh, an alternate universe where the red light equals go. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Crazy. Well... <laughs> A thrilling no, ride. Yeah. Well, thanks very much indeed for listening to this week's episode. Uh, we will endeavour to be with you again sooner uh, than uh, than this gap, and hopefully we'll be bringing you our 
a long-awaited historical epics episode. That is next up on our agenda. God, that idea is nearly as old as some of the settings of the films we'll be talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Great joke. It's been etched onto the walls of a cave somewhere. (laughs) Uh, And we're also going to be talking about, hopefully, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis as well at some point. Right, thank you very much indeed both. Uh, Speak to you very soon. Bye for now. Pleasure as always. Farewell, film fans. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it would mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press. If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing. And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger. And that's at Creaky Chair Pod on Instagram and at Creaky Chair on Twitter. And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with the ice road.